You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. In this most unpredictable of years, the All-Ireland football semi-finals have delivered two completely unpredicted pairings. We're going to hear from the two counties whose provincial wins came against all the odds. Susan Brady is the PRO for the Cavan County Board, while John Kennedy is the father of three of the Tipperary footballers, Coleman, Jack and Connell. Susan, let's start with you. Ordinarily, with an All-Ireland semi-final to look forward to, a county would be absolutely buzzing what's it like this year um it's it's unbelievable um the feelings that are going around at the moment it's like christmas eve we're waiting for santi the place is on fire everywhere is blue every child that's going to school in cavan this morning are wearing colors the the whole county has just turned blue and white overnight that does sound fantastic. Now, somebody was saying to me that you're also the postmistress in Ballyhays. So would it be fair to say that you're kind of busy at the moment? Uh, it's, it's actually mental, but you know what? It's a great mental. You'll take it. You'll take it any day of the week. You know, I came to, into work early this morning and there was up the dub side and stuck to my door. Like The crack is great down here. <laughs> that does sound wonderful. Let's turn to John Kennedy, who, as I say, is father of uh, three of the Tipperary panel. John, Tipperary's win in Munster, if anything, it was an even bigger shock than Cavan's win in Ulster. What's it been like in Tip over the past couple of weeks? Yeah, 85 years is a long time, so uh, there was great excitement and highlighted, I suppose, by the year that we've uh, have had. Uh, so uh, everybody was uh, elated for all involved and looking forward to, uh, to Sunday now. Mm, does it mean, in a way, even more to people because it's been such a strange year? I think it probably did. I mean, I was amazed with all the reaction to the, the Munster final win. Um, I, I suppose with bloody Sunday, Sunday celebrations prior to that everything seemed to come together in 85 years on uh, these guys a lot of those guys have been trying a, a long time to, to get a monster medal and um, and as you say the year that was in it it heightened all the excitement it was it was incredible mm. You're in a really unusual position because you have three sons playing football but you have two All-Ireland hurling medals yourself <laughs> Yes, I think uh, as I said before, you're a product of your environment. Where I'm living is is a uh, is a big football part of the county here, and uh, the three lads played everything up through the through the years, and uh, they've all uh, come to the conclusion that football is what they wanted to do eventually. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a great couple of years following following them doing all the the various sports. But probably last Sunday uh, last Sunday week was probably the highlight to be sure. Mm. One of the things, though, that will stand out is, you know, it is such a massive day, yet you can't be there. Yes, um, it's it's been difficult in that sense. I mean, looking at it home on TV, I think it heightens the tension. Um, but, you know, at the year that we've had, I think everybody is acclimatised to the situation. We haven't been to see any matches for quite a while now. So, But it's fantastic this time of the year to have it to look forward to. And... Um, after watching the Munster final at home on TV, I was very happy to to uh, to be there just to, to see it, actually. Yeah, I'd say the nerves were shredded anyway. Susan, back finally to you. Cavan have, well, it's perhaps an understatement to say that you're facing a big challenge this weekend. Do you stand any chance? Um, well, you know, there, there's a very old saying to be the best, you have to beat the best. 
Um, this group of players have ultimate belief in themselves, so they're not going to go to Dublin for the spin. They don't right. have a group up there, give an account of themselves, and, you know, I'd be hoping that I'll be tweeting out, you know, at the end of the game, all I want for Christmas is Sam. Yeah, and are you conscious that the scenes we saw a couple of weeks ago, they, they gave so many people a lift. I mean, I know everybody doesn't follow the sports, but but even people who don't particularly follow football seem to get a lift from, from the Tipperary and the Cavan victories. Yeah, it'll probably open up a new question within the, um, within the GA calendar. You know, like this year, you went back to knockout championship. Mm. Like up to this, the championship had nearly begun become a foregone conclusion where it was the usual teams were there you know the last weeks of September but now we've gone back to knockout championship and it has just brought a whole new lease of life to championship Mm, you know and like knockout just it can turn up anything like it's it's really unusual that a hundred years on the same four teams are in the final like that's totally unique in itself Yeah, it's astonishing. All right. Well, listen, thank you both so much for joining us on the programme this morning. And I think it's fair to say that people all over the country will be up for you this weekend. Susan Brady there from Cavan and John Kennedy from Tipperary. The UK has become the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine for widespread use. British regulator, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, says the jab, which offers up to 95% protection against COVID-19 illness, is safe for rollout from next week. Professor James McInerney is the head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Nottingham. He joins me now. What does this day mean to you, Professor McInerney, and this announcement on this vaccine? Well, I think this is just the most enormous relief. I just, this morning, I just feel a, a sense of relief that uh, we've finally gotten uh, to where we are. And, you know, it's been been a, been a hard year and this is just such good news today. I'm, I'm so pleased. I'm so delighted. And in particular, I'm so pleased uh, about two things in this vaccine. One is that it, it's, it's so safe. The number of adverse reactions to it have been very, very low and they've been very small adverse reactions like um, uh, some people have reported a headache or uh, uh, reddening in the area around where the vaccine was administered. But after 43,000 people involved in a clinical trial, I mean, there's been nothing more serious than that, zero. And the second thing to say is that it's it's a vaccine that's uh, that doesn't seem to decrease in efficacy uh, in older populations. And so it looks like it's going to be a vaccine that works quite well for everybody that can be vaccinated. And so, the, you know, it's just such a great day. It just really is. To, to, it is there's hope on the horizon. And, uh, and the, the, this is going to start rolling out in the UK next week and I suspect across the world uh, very, very soon. And I take it with that enthusiasm from you that you will avail of this vaccine yourself. Well, I, I signed up for the clinical trials. They never called me, but um, yeah, for sure, I, I'll take it. My family will take it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll be first in line as soon as they let me. But what do you say to the doubters? And there will be doubters. Mm. And, you know, for example, this, this type of vaccine, I understand, has never been approved for use in humans before. 
This is true. This is true. So, 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 uh, just on that particular point, the vaccine is based on what's called messenger RNA, mRNA. So that doesn't matter what that really is. It's very like DNA, but not quite. Uh, this is thought to be a very much safer way to produce a vaccine than the older ways, which quite often involved, you know, killed whole virus and and so on, which are which would work fine. But this particular way is. Um, much more precise, uh, uh, and and you know, it's by design, and uh, we thought to have fewer uh, adverse reactions to it. And the clinical trial data came back saying uh, saying that this this looks like at least for the COVID version of it, this looks like it's very very. Uh, true. So um, I'm not terribly worried about the technology. Um, it should be, it's a very modern technology. It's very, very new, as you said, uh, but it has been trialed now. It's not that it's untrialed. It has been trialed. And what I'd say to anybody that's that's wondering about all of this is maybe just get get your hands on all of the numbers, you know, that have been produced. They're all available to, to us all. 43,000 people would, you know, go a long way to fill in Croke Park and they all got vaccinated. They was, it was double blind. They, they didn't know whether they were getting the vaccine or the placebo. When you looked at those 43,000 people, 170 got COVID in the end. But only, I think, sorry, the numbers are, it's eight uh, that actually got the vaccine got COVID. So it's not 100% uh, efficacy. Uh, efficacy, uh, but about 162 that got the placebo got got COVID. So it really has strong protection. And uh, and I'd say to people, just look at those numbers and look at the the safety numbers mm. as well. Uh, and the fact that nobody nobody uh, has shown a strong adverse reaction to the vaccine. Well, you know, for me, you know, numbers matter and and, and facts count. And and uh, I, you know, I would just say to anybody, you know, don't take the word of experts. Go look at the numbers yourself. They're, they're there to be seen. Has its efficacy been looked at in different age groups? Yes, it has. So, so in order to conduct a really good clinical trial, you should really uh, try to structure your trials so that you have all of the age groups covered, you've ethnic backgrounds covered, male, female, all of those sorts of things. So so you'd cover it in that way. Mm. And the Pfizer uh, data did cover it in, in that way. The other thing to say about, about this particular vaccine, because, you know, many, many, many people, we know the majority of people when they get infected, it's mild for them. So the question again would have been for this vaccine, does it stop severe cases? Because, you know, vaccinating you know, youngish populations that might not get uh, get the you know might not have have um, you know very very adverse reaction to COVID anyway. You know, protecting those is not as important as protecting uh, as seeing a drop in the number of severe cases. And they saw one severe case in those that got the vaccine. One, it really had a huge protective effect against severe COVID. So that's really important as well. So in answer to your question, yes, it's stratified across all age groups and then taking a look at disease severity also had that benefit as well. In in terms of that rollout, will it involve one jab or more than one jab? Uh, What is the the length of immunity? Do we know that yet? Uh, And it has to be stored, I understand, at this minus 70 degrees. So will that narrow uh, the locations where it can be administered? Okay, so two jabs uh, um, administered two weeks apart and uh, we wouldn't expect to have full immunity uh, until about 28 days. Uh, so that's that's the first part. So there will be two jabs. Uh, uh, the second thing is, yes, it needs to be stored in long-term storage at minus 70 degrees. So that's uh, dry ice, uh, um, you know, liquid nitrogen, that, those kinds of low temperatures or minus 80 freezers. Not everybody will have those. However, Pfizer has said that the, the vaccine can survive in a fridge for maybe up to five days. 
So um, it can you know so the so the rollout is not uncomplicated, but it does and it does require that you know fairly quickly you get from the minus eighty minus seventy storage to uh, to a fridge and then get it administered as quickly as possible. So it's not without complications in terms of the rollout, but All you right. know it can be done too. Professor James McInerney, thank you very much for your time. Next to that decision by the British government to refuse a public inquiry into the murder of Belfast solicitor Pat Finucane nearly 32 years ago, he was shot dead by UDA gunmen in front of his wife and family. Subsequent investigations uncovered collusion between the paramilitaries and the British security forces. Last year, the UK Supreme Court found that there had never been an adequate investigation and said it was up to the British government to decide what to do. But the refusal to hold a public inquiry was met with this reaction from leading US Congressman Richard Neal, who had co-signed a letter just last week urging such a move. Well, I'm disappointed. I think there was optimistic belief and anticipation that there would be a full inquiry and all of the evidence at the time pointed to collusion. So I think Geraldine Finucane and her family are entitled to a full review that is not only authentic but stands up under the weight of history. Well, Geraldine Finucane, Pat Finucane's widow, is on the line now. Geraldine Finucane, good morning and you're welcome to the programme. Good morning. I know that you were angry at the decision yesterday, but were you surprised? Um, Well, I suppose after 30 plus years, nothing that the British government does should surprise me. But um, it was quite startling their arrogance at um, ignoring the highest court in their land um, yes it, it was it was quite a shock what did the Secretary of State tell you when he briefed you as to why there was not going to be a public inquiry he didn't actually say why he just stated that they were going to um, uh, have a, po- a police investigation and possibly a police ombudsman investigation. Um, he didn't go into any detail as to why that decision was made. But a police investigation is unlikely, isn't it? Because the the PSNI chief constable issued a statement almost immediately yesterday evening saying a number of things, but but pertinently that no new line of inquiry existed at the moment. Well, obviously, when we were talking to the Secretary of State, we um, that statement had not been made. Otherwise, we would have um, talked to him about that and asked him questions about it. But it does seem rather bizarre that he is insisting that the police are going to do this and then the police bring out statements saying, well, actually, we don't really have anything to investigate and we may even say that a review isn't necessary. It, it just seems that, um, well, I, I really can't put into words what it seems like, but it doesn't seem as though everybody's singing off the same hymn sheet. Where now for your family? Have you run out of road? Where is left for you to go? Um, I will never run out of road as long as there's breath in my body. Um, um, today is a new day. Um, we shall take stock um, and um, move forward. We have, um, as you heard, Richie Neal, Congressman Neal, and 
many other congressmen and uh, senators. In fact, when President-elect Biden was a senator, he put his name to um, a Senate resolution supporting our cause. So we have very powerful supporters and they will stand by us as they have done for a number of years. And we shall see where shall we, we shall go from there. Will you tell our listeners, Geraldine, what is left for you to uncover? What truth are you still waiting on after all of these investigations, including a judge-led investigation, which uncovered state collusion? What else are you waiting for? Well, it all hasn't been uncovered. Um, Every investigation has been told that they have seen everything there is to see and every investigation so far has uncovered so much more. When I started this long journey, nobody believed me when I suggested that um, there was collusion. Um, And we were proven right eventually. So, you know, who, who exactly knows what is yet to be uncovered What toll has this taken on you? Because you saw your husband murdered in front of you. You were shot and injured that night as well. And your campaign, it has lasted over 30 years. What impact has that all had on you? Well, um, it it is very, very difficult to maintain it for such a long time. And really... um, All I can say is I do not wish it on anyone. Um, Everyone deserves deserves to know the truth about what happened um, to their loved ones. And for the British government to keep avoiding that issue is despicable. And not only does it take a toll on me, but it takes a toll on every single person who is suffering and who is left in the dark about what went on. We appreciate you talking to us this morning. Thank you very much indeed. Geraldine Finucane joining us this morning from Belfast. A government funding package for Irish artists impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic has received much criticism in recent days. It's called the Music Industry Stimulus Package. It's managed by First Music Contact for the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media. It was initially €1 million, but after a huge number of applications was increased to €1.7 million. There are grants for songwriting, album release and recording an album, but hundreds of applicants, most, were declined. We'll talk to the woman in charge of First Music Contact shortly. Sinead O'Connor, Sharon Shannon and Damien Dempsey will get grants. Steve Wall, actor and singer-songwriter with the stunning Won't, and we can talk to him now. Steve Wall, good morning. Thanks for talking to us today. Good morning. Um, Um, Thanks for having me on. What were you looking for, Stephen? And do you know why you weren't successful? Uh, No, I don't. I kind of got the stock email answer, which was basically... Most uh, people I know that applied got it as well, saying that um, we didn't supply enough information. First of all, can I just say that I, I want to thank the Department of uh, Arts, Culture and Minister Catherine Martin for actually trying to help the music sector here and actively engaging with us all and the various groups involved to try and help this crazy situation that we're all in. 
Um, I wasn't really expecting to, to get it anyway, but uh, myself and a lot of my peers, we all decided we had to apply because, um, I mean, I've never received anything over the years anyway in terms of uh, funding via the arts. I mean, the music industry in Ireland is very diverse and it's really tricky to find a way of supporting it that keeps everyone happy. That's why this latest allocation of grants, the Music Stimulus Fund, has caused a lot of upset. So many artists from all over the country are saying the system is unfair in that the majority of applicants received no funding, while some received awards from two or three of the funds, some receiving up to €20,000, while the majority got nothing. We'll be speaking to Angela Dorgan shortly. Now, she says that it was a fair process, it was transparent, but there just simply wasn't enough funds uh, for those who wanted them. I mean, if there was many more people who needed the money than there is money allocated for them, how do you, how do you fairly decide who gets it and who doesn't? Well, in a case like this, there was obviously the cake was too small yes. for the amount of people that applied. So nobody, you know, you can't, everybody can't be, uh, can't receive funding. But, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. The whole funding system needs an overhaul in this country. For years, I've heard artists talking about applying numerous times for, say, travel grants to tour abroad, only to be deemed unsuccessful. I know one artist who has applied for a travel grant unsuccessfully around six times, and she's a solo artist. While I know of another act that has received close to €100,000 in travel grants over a period of years. Fair play to them, they applied and they got it. But it's unfair, the application process is complex, there's a lack of transparency. And why are some acts repeatedly funded while others are not? Let's speak to Angela Dorgan, she is Director of First Music Contact Ireland. Angela Dorgan, good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Can I ask you to address that question that Steve Wall put there at the end? Why some artists uh, are constantly receive grant funding and others don't? Um, well, I suppose I can only speak for the fund that we administered for the um, for the stimulus package. Um, we had a, a robust system um, which we shared on our website, and then had uh, three open public zooms where we talked artists through the process. Um, it was a fair and transparent process. We don't run funding schemes. This was our first uh, scheme that we run ran in partnership with the department. So I can't speak to other funding schemes run by either the Arts Council or the department or, or any others. I would agree with Steve that there wasn't enough money in the funds. I would also agree with Steve that this is a sector that has been let down by funds in the past, which is why we we um, actively um, were really involved in, in getting this funds out. There, there's been a huge number of artists who were successful um, there are learnings from this scheme, and I agree with Stephen, and, and I think there will be an opportunity for us to report back to the department and uh, what we learned ourselves in this scheme. We simply had no idea of the demand uh, once when we set out the criteria for the scheme. Uh, we set them out very clearly on our website. Um, and then we talked every artist through the process. We took a lot of calls, a lot of emails, and we allowed uh, artists who applied early to provide us with additional information before the closing date as well. But then it comes down to 
Um, unfortunately, you are judged. The criteria for judging were laid out and there, because we only had enough for 13% of the funds to be dispersed in our particular case, okay. we have 87% of those who applied were not successful this time. I would say, though, what's positive about it, it is it has prompted the minister to make uh, these funds available again and okay. we will go back to the department with, with robust findings about it's, how we think that should be run. It's not means to and yet some of the artists, the successful artists who appear on the list, they're very successful artists who have received funding under uh, under a number of categories here. Yes, uh, we had, it's, when we were designing the scheme, again, we didn't have any sight on the demand for it. Uh, the objective was the scheme, of the scheme was to get as much funding out to artists to replace. And, and I suppose the context of the scheme was to help artists to replace an, an absolutely decimated music industry. There were many very successful artists who found their road to success okay. selling gigs and selling albums decimated. We had to take every application on face value and on merit. And I think a lot of our findings, um, I, I take Steve's point that some artists uh, were funded multiple okay. times. We designed, as we went into the process, we designed it to be fair and that people could apply multiple times. So once we saw demand, we could, couldn't then change those rules. Okay, so, um, sorry to cut across the answer talking, but just, just, just to give Steve Wall just a chance to respond just before we finish, if that's okay. Steve? Um, I think it's totally unfair that um, artists were awarded um, funds from the, the, the multiple sections. I think we, because there was so little money that that shouldn't have happened. I think that any future funding needs to be handled within the Department of Arts and Culture itself with the help of an industry panel that represents all the various sectors, genres of music and rotates regularly. There needs to be a published register of who has received government support over the past, say, three to four years so that applicants that have never received anything could be prioritised when future rounds of funding become available. And also the panels that decide on who gets awarded money need to represent okay. all genres of music and they need to regularly rotate so that everyone gets a fair chance at some point. Steve Wall and Angela Dorgan, thank you both very much for speaking to us. And today is a big day for many in the hospitality sector. The shops have been back open since the start of the week, of course, but there are still many businesses that remain closed due to public health restrictions. And Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue is bringing in additional supports for businesses that can't reopen. And Minister Donoghue joins us now from our Doyle studio. Good morning to you, Pascal Donoghue. Good morning, Anya. Now, for those who can't reopen, uh, there's the CRSS extra payments. Is that right? Tell us about that. So the uh, COVID restriction support scheme or CRIS is a scheme that we brought in on budget day. And what that scheme does is for businesses that are required to close uh, due to public health guidance, or if their premises are so restricted, they have a very, very low level of trade. The Revenue Commissioner may gives them a payment per week of up to uh, €5,000, depending on what their normal turnover is. And for businesses that are not able to open up due to public health guidance, 
across the last two weeks of December and the first week of January. For each of those weeks, there will be an additional payment of CRIS to support those businesses that cannot open due to public health guidance. And we're doing this because, as you said, Anya, it's a great day for many businesses who are able to reopen. We want them to reopen safely and well. We need to respect their staff as they do that. But it continues to be a very difficult period for other businesses that still cannot open due to public health guidance. And Minister, um, I don't know whether you heard Shane Lowney from Scano's Gastropub earlier in the programme. Uh, they're not reopening. Now, they agonised over this on health grounds. And and he said they're finding that revenue are being very unflexible and saying to them, you know, you could reopen, you're choosing not to. He says to you, stay the course with us. We're, we're, we're staying closed for health reasons. Uh, well, uh, I didn't hear the interview, uh, but I do understand the point that Mr. Lanny is making. And it, it's not appropriate for me to comment on any individual business. But I do understand that the decisions that many business owners are taking are very tough and they're very much aware of the health of their staff and their families when they make these decisions. So in general, uh, if a business decides uh, that they uh, uh, do not want to uh, reopen, uh, if they are still meeting certain criteria, they will, for example, still be on the employment wage subsidy scheme. They will still be able to access the rates waiver that is in place from local authorities and they will still be able to access the provisions that are there regarding paying off your tax bills over time in a very careful and planned way. It is the case that the particular provision that we have in series that your first question was about uh, is only available to businesses that have to be closed. And we are doing that because it is important to be fair with the use of taxpayers' money. There are many businesses reopening today. Uh, As they reopen, they will lose this one payment, but they will receive many other payments. And uh, they may well raise raise the question that if they are opening and they're losing the series payment, uh, how is it the case that businesses decide to stay closed and still receive us? And there is an important equity and use of taxpayers' money issue that I do have to be aware of. When you see headlines such as we're seeing in the papers today uh, in The Independent talking about an avalanche of bookings, um, 50 million to be spent over the next couple of days, does that make you happy about the money coming into uh, the Exchequer or does it make you very worried about public health, particularly with the warning from Philip Nolan about a potential 1,200 cases in January? Well, Anya, when I I hear a question like that, and indeed when I heard to your review of what it says in the papers earlier on today, uh, uh, the feelings I have about that do reflect many of the decisions that I've been involved in during the year. Uh, On the one hand, uh, it is so tremendous uh, that we are going to see tens of thousands of our fellow citizens go back to work this week. We have two jobs in our country across 2021 in particular that would be so important. Be COVID and get our country back to work. And to see so many go back to work this week is essential. But on the other hand, it's just equally essential that when we are in our restaurants, when we are in our pubs that are open, when we are in our hotels, We have to respect not only the livelihoods of those who are looking after us, but their health as well. We have to exercise discretion. We have to intrude exercise constraint uh, to ensure that across this period, we don't create further health risks 
for ourselves and for those who are looking after us when you're out having a meal or out with your family. So it's just so important that we try to keep the balance right across the Christmas period because in turn it will influence profoundly what 2021 looks like. Um, the November exchequer figures nearly a nine billion deficit for the month. Uh, the Fiscal Advisory Council warning on this programme earlier in the week that you've taken on permanent increases in spending. We're back in big government in, in, in these uh, pandemic times, but you haven't worked out how you'll pay for it. Well, in fairness, the uh, deficit figure, which is really, really big, as you just said a moment ago for November, which I acknowledge, a nine billion euro figure. Uh, it is also, when you look at what our deficit for 2020 is going to be, it is going to be below the figures that I outlined earlier on in the year. And the Fiscal Advisory Council did also acknowledge that the level of supports that we put in place uh, to support jobs, to keep income in our country across 2020 were appropriate. We will deal with much of the cost of covid by getting our country back to work. And as people get back to work, we do need to ensure they get the return they deserve from their income when they are in work. There may well be costs uh, in relation to how we look after our public health service, how we get ready for pandemics and other serious diseases in the future. But that's a question we're facing with the rest of the world. And the magnitude of that cost is one I believe our country can afford. And the truth will only become clear to us Mm -hmm. when we have our country back to work and when we've made further progress in containing COVID. In fact, there's an argument that um, too many economists and politicians indeed um, are fighting, if you like, with the tactics of the last economic crash, the banking crash and the austerity we all came to know with, to know so well then. Even the IMF is saying spend, spend, spend and the risk would be cutting back too soon. And I'm very much aware of that risk Uh, and it is the case uh, as uh, somebody who's so privileged to be Minister for Finance I'm always aware of the, the ghosts of the great, of the great, great difficulty of our last crisis. They're always with us. But we have to understand two things. Uh, The first one is this crisis is completely different. It is due to a disease. It is due to a pandemic that has arrived into our world. Uh, And the decisions, therefore, that we have taken in 2020 are completely different to where we were a decade ago. And they're completely different for two reasons. The first one is we came into this terrible crisis with our country's economy, with our national finances in good condition because of sensible decisions that we made in recent years. And the second reason why we're in a different place now is because the European Union and the European Central Mm -hmm. Bank are acting differently to how we acted a decade ago as well. And for example, the employment wage subsidy scheme uh, that I've been on your programme about on many different occasions, Sonia, we've over 300,000 of our fellow citizens on that support scheme at the moment. That's over 300,000 jobs that we've been able to protect, that we've been able to keep. And Ireland can do that now, and we couldn't do this a decade ago, uh, because of how we've looked after our country's finances and because the European Central Bank and Europe are now acting in a different way. And, given, uh, and we are acting differently. This is not the same as where we were a decade ago. And given what you say about things being completely different now, Minister, and, you know, it's important to recognise this is a pandemic, 
the vaccination programme is going to be rolled out here and it's such fantastic news from January. But you're saying the pub payments and so on, they're, they're only guaranteed to the end of March. Now, it's going to take a lot longer than that to get people across the country vaccinated. Will you continue payments beyond March until the vaccination programme is complete? Well, Anya, we will make that decision as we move into 2021 uh, because in truth, the next part of the uh, journey that we will be on economically is uh, we will have to get our national finances back to a position of stability. We will have to reduce our borrowing over time as we get our country back to work and as we beat this disease. Uh, we have made sensible and fair decisions with the pandemic unemployment payment, uh, but it is also a payment that's correct. It's fair. It needs to be there. It is also costing approximately €100 million per week. Our employment wage subsidy schemes, by the time we get to next March, will have cost approximately €5 billion for the period of time they have been there. So will they stay till people have been vaccinated? Uh, Well, these are the kind of decisions that we'll make in 2021 when we are clear with our vaccination programme and when we are clear with the help of our country in the level of progress that we have in beating COVID. Uh, We will have to get our national finances back to a position of balance over time. We can, however, avoid the horrendous difficulties that we faced a decade ago by continuing to make sensible choices regarding, for example, the pandemic unemployment payment, regarding, for example, exceptional pieces of expenditure that we have to have in place while we have this disease in our country. But as indeed you acknowledged a moment ago, Anya, the fact that a vaccine is arriving, the fact that we have so many people in our country with the ability to go back to work this week is a really positive place for our country to be in. And we need to look after that progress and sustain it in to next year. Finally and briefly Minister, the Public Accounts Committee of course one that works very closely, looks very closely at the work of your department. Should Brian Stanley resign or is his apology over controversial comments enough? It's not enough. Uh, what Brian Stanley said and his recent tweet there in 27 uh, of a number of years ago where he linked uh, somebody's uh, sexuality to the job that they do is just utterly unacceptable. His track it's record an, on gay rights? Uh, pardon me? His track record on gay rights? Well, he needs to reconcile that track record and gay rights with how you can make a statement like that uh, about the leader of my party and the dentist shook. He needs to reconcile the two of those things. Uh, you can't be making those kind of comments in, those kind of to- in that kind of tone about anybody. You can't link up uh, somebody's sexuality with the job that they do. We're a different and better country than that. And it's just reflective of the general tone that Sinn Féin take about politics and they take about politicians who they oppose. Should he resign as PAC chair? uh, Well, if he can't provide a credible explanation or answer the question regarding why he believes a tweet like that is unacceptable, uh, then I do think he has questions to answer regarding why he should stay in that role. But I think there's a bigger question than that, Anya. And the bigger question is, why did he delete his Twitter account? What other comments are there? And I think the two questions that he needs to answer is, number one, why should he still be in that role? And number two, why was it necessary to delete his social media account. And they are questions that Mary Lou MacDonald and that Sinn Féin must answer today. 
their tone on politics, their tone okay. about how they speak about those who have different political views to them. In many, at many times and in many cases, I don't believe it's acceptable and I believe it poisons the well of how we debate politics in our country. And uh, Deputy Stanley and Sinn Féin need to assure us are there any, uh, what are the comments are on the account that was deleted us and explain okay. why it was necessary to delete us. Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Finance, thank you for talking to us on Morning Ireland today. How dark is the Irish night sky? Well, last month, for the very first time, the Central Statistics Office published data on light pollution across the country. And it showed that Ireland is more dimly lit than some of our European neighbours. But even so, the brightly, the most brightly lit part of the country still contains 166 times more artificial light than the darkest corners. Angus Cox reports. So that's a proper telescope. <laughs> engineering from a bygone era but the first thing we do is open up the dope so you can see the shutters and then i could either go east or west with the dome so we'll just turn it on now and now we can point the telescope straight out peter gallagher is head of astrophysics at the dublin institute for advanced studies or dias for short as he gives me a tour of the Diaston Sink Observatory in Castleknock in Dublin, Peter explains the impact light pollution has had there over the past century or so. This is the South Dome and it was built in the 1860s and inside is a huge telescope that was used to measure the distances to stars. This telescope was state-of-the-art uh, at the time in the 1800s and in the early 1900s as Dublin began to grow light pollution from the city below began to make faint objects very difficult to see with this telescope and nowadays we're surrounded by lighting. We've got the M50 beside us uh, with all the lighting on the M50 and we have Ashton and Finglas on either side of us so the sky is now very bright. Here we rarely see the Milky Way because of this light pollution that just makes the sky far too bright to see the faint stars. And, you know, if you were down the country, you might see Orion, which is, you know, a really distinctive constellation. You know, you've got the three stars of its belt. But if you're in the city, you'll struggle to see it. So for us city dwellers, it's unfortunate. The light pollution, this spilling of light, just ruins the night sky for it. And what's really frustrating about light pollution is that we're wasting energy. We're wasting money by sending the light upwards. We don't want the light to be lighting up the sky. We want it to come down. We want it to light up where we are. While urban stargazing is limited due to the prevalence of artificial light, it's a very different story in the darkest parts of the country, which, according to the new CSO figures on light pollution, include parts of southwest Kerry and West Mayo. When we look up on a clear night, um, it's almost confusing with the amount of stars to make out the, the basics um, of the constellations we'd normally see in, in say, more light-polluted areas. When you're uh, in a dark sky park and you're looking up at the Milky Way, it's quite overwhelming and it makes us feel so um, almost insignificant, that sense of us being on that little blue dot. Georgia McMillan is a volunteer with the Mayo Dark Skies Group in Newport. She is involved with a pilot lighting plan for the town that would aim to reduce artificial light levels, thereby safeguarding the night sky overhead. We've raised the issue of our own lighting and how we can improve it. We've got funding from the Heritage Council to engage um, some expertise from Italian light designers. They are coming up with a plan to uh, improve our lighting. And it sounds like an odd concept having to try and preserve the night sky, but that's what you're trying to do. 
We are because um, we need that as a, a species ourselves. We've evolved with natural night and natural day cycles. So, so too has all biodiversity and wildlife. We are rapidly losing the night across the country. If you look at um, artificial light maps and you compare how they, how they were, say, 10 years ago, we've increased our light emissions dramatically, even though we are still one of the darkest countries in Europe. Brian Espy, professor in Trinity College Dublin School of Physics. Globally, I think we're seeing a general increase in light by a few percent per year. It's becoming more of an issue. I think there's an increased awareness. I'm getting, uh, as part of Dark Sky Ireland, of which I'm a member, we're getting more inquiries. And what sort of problems does light pollution lead to? There's the energy waste. Some of the older lights would waste maybe 30% of their energy just going up into the air. Makes for very pretty pictures when taken from the space station. But remember, that's energy that's going out into space never to be seen again. And there is a cost to it. There's an environmental cost. There's a carbon cost. Uh, from Dublin, the light shines maybe 30, 40 kilometers away. Some of that we have to live with, maybe. But we can certainly reduce the light levels and reduce the light load. We do have some areas such as uh, Kerry and Mayo, uh, dark sky areas that we're trying to protect so that in the future, at least, we'll have areas that are almost pristine. And in our position on the western edge of, of Europe, this is a commodity that we have, particularly now as we're looking to coming out of this COVID crisis, how do we attract tourists in? This is something we'll have. 80% of the people around the world cannot see the Milky Way. That's something that you can go and be astonished by in parts of Ireland. And that's Professor Brian Espy from Trinity College in Dublin ending Angus Cox's report. And today is World AIDS Day. 40 years ago, the first cases of what became known as AIDS were identified and in the years since, 65 million people have been infected with the HIV virus and AIDS-related illnesses have claimed the lives of over 32 million people. Now the world's in the grip of a new pandemic. COVID-19 has so far claimed 1.4 million lives. Can the global response to HIV-AIDS help inform how the world tackles the coronavirus? Professor Fiona Mulcahy helped set up this country's first Sexually Transmitted Diseases Unit at St. James's Hospital in 1987 and in the years since HIV AIDS, once a death sentence has become a manageable diagnosis. Professor Mulcahy, you're welcome to Morning Ireland. Good morning, Mary. I wonder when you saw in the early part of this year uh, the, the medical world's response in, in countries like China and, and Spain and Italy and we all saw the pictures uh, of the response to, to COVID-19. Did it bring you back? Did it bring you back uh, to the 1980s and those early days of AIDS and HIV and the fear and the terror and the stigma yes. at the time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was like re-looking at uh, a past, uh, re-emerging. I mean, in, in, th- in those days, 1987, people, first of all, we didn't know a lot about the virus. There was absolutely no treatment and a death sentence was inevitable. So you had a terror among not only the general public, but but among healthcare staff as well. And everybody, you know, people were wearing double PPEs, wearing glo- double gloves. Um, some hospitals were very anxious about even treating patients. Um, they were separated into single rooms. We had the time when, when somebody died, they were put in the body bags, the black body bags, which were synonymous with somebody dying of HIV and everyone knew about it. And the stigma that was associated with it was horrendous. But clearly that has all changed and um, we're now in such a much better place. So I suppose the greatest lesson is that knowledge helps everybody and, and there is progress in medicine that is unexpected and perhaps beyond um, your wildest dreams, really, when I look back and 
1987 to see mm. how it has changed. Talk to me a little more about the progress that has been made since. What point have you reached now? You can prevent HIV, can you now, with drugs? Absolutely. So we now have what we call PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's a drug that we give to um, at-risk populations. So they take one tablet a day to prevent acquisition of HIV. And that would be without any other protection. So in other words, somebody who has unprotected sex can, if they're on a tablet, be reassured that they're unlikely to pick up HIV. But most importantly, we also, I mean, uh, the whole... Um, emphasis is trying to identify people who are HIV positive early so that they go on treatment almost instantly. Uh, our aim is within certainly the first week of diagnosis. So once somebody is put on their antiretroviral drugs, that is their treatment for HIV, and the virus is suppressed so that it is undetectable, then you cannot transmit that virus to another person. So by treating and identifying patients early, you limit the risk of transmission to uh, the wider population. Um, we, so we, so, sorry, continue, no, continue. Yeah, no, so in many areas across the world and even the developing countries in sub-Saharan Africa, they've seen a 40% with these measures, a reduction in HIV transmission. Um, and so the, the expectation is that by the year 2030, we will, should see elimination of HIV or certainly total control. And will we see a vaccine? What has been the progress? When we see the progress that's been made so quickly yeah, uh, in, in vaccines with COVID, yeah, what, what is the yeah. progress on a vaccine so, with HIV? Yeah, AIDS? I mean, that was the utopia for HIV before we had these other three prongs of treatment, um, early diagnosis and prevention with the PrEP drug was to find a vaccine. And obviously a vaccine would be fantastic for developing countries where there isn't always access to medication in the supply chain that you would expect. However, unlike COVID, um, HIV is not the same type of virus. It certainly mutates regularly. It changes all the time. So it is very difficult to get a vaccine on, where a coronavirus is relatively stable. The other thing is that when we vaccinate somebody, we develop an antibody to the virus you're protecting yourself against. But patients who are infected with HIV get that antibody quickly when they're infected, but that is offers no protection going forward. Um, so they have a different immune response mm. and the expectation that a vaccine is easily developed has been fallen by the track time and time again. They've invested a huge amount of money. There have been seven international trials and most of those didn't work out. And there were some that were stopped halfway because actually the incidence of HIV in those getting the vaccine appeared to be higher than those that didn't. So I'm afraid it's really been not as progressive as COVID. Um, so I'm glad we have the other options in terms of managing HIV. Absolutely. Well, Professor Fiona Mulcahy, thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland. Yesterday saw the reopening of retail shops and some decided to go that bit further to alleviate pent-up demand. Two penny stores stayed open overnight at Dundrum and Blanchardstown shopping centres as a once-off measure. Elsewhere, at least one Dun store decided to begin what will be its Christmas season of 24-hour opening hours. And the question was, was would anyone turn up to shop? Our reporter Jonah Sullivan did. She stayed up to find out. She wasn't pregnant when we got here. That's how long we've been queuing. 
It's after midnight in Dundrum Shopping Centre and at the top of the queue for pennies, customers are eager to get in. Simple question, why? Why come here? It's so late at night. We only finished work at half ten and we work in Aldi, so we finished work at half ten. We came straight over thinking it wouldn't be busy. How's that worked out for you? Not great. Literally not great. I think we've been here about an hour now. Arriving at the shop entrance, the queue looks relatively short until you move to join it and discover it goes around the corner, through the double doors, through a second set of double doors, down into the car park, along the back wall, and then finally doubles back on itself. Why did you decide to come shopping at midnight? Just to get like a few nice clothes and bits for Christmas. Um, to give them a bit of fun, um, to do a pennies all nighter for a bit of crack and something to remember. You know, just something to look back on. Just a bit of fun, isn't it? last six weeks have been hard. Uh, well, the plan was to not have any queues, but that's not really worked out now, has it? Is it because it's, it's somewhere to go now late at night? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's an excuse to get off school tomorrow. <laughs> So you're not going to school tomorrow? No. We're going to try to get off. (laughs) You've just joined the end of the queue. Can you describe what it's like? Well, very long. We came here because it's my friend's birthday, so we were like, oh, here, 12 o'clock, let's celebrate her birthday. But yeah, it's way too long. Colin Doyle wasn't at the centre to shop last night. He was there trying to get some work done. We're here building a stand for Cardboard Magic. This is the right time to come in, normally when there's nobody around, but strangely tonight there's more people than I've ever seen in, in a shopping centre. What do you make of it? Madness. Because, I mean, you know, what's so important that people are com- still coming in at one o'clock in the morning? I mean, I was down there a few minutes ago and the queue's just getting bigger and bigger. So what were people buying? Pajamas, eyelashes. Um, we just came to get um, a few socks and a voucher, really. Well, I, I actually, I came to get work clothes and then I ended up buying, like, half the shop. <laughs> I got everything I didn't need. And what are you guys going to buy? Stocking fillers, you know yourself. Outside, several taxis were waiting at the rank. How's business? Uh, business is quiet at the moment. It's very quiet, so we are, uh, hopefully, we are expecting few people come in. Back inside, the shop is still busy, but now, an hour later, at 1am, the queue has vanished. Did you see the queue earlier? It was mad. It was down out around the car park, like looped up. It's gone now. I know, yeah. We were only saying we should have just come down now instead. We should have stayed up, but... Yeah, it's still so busy in there. Like, we were queuing to pay for our stuff for... The same, about yeah, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Penny's wasn't the only retailer operating on a 24-hour basis in Dublin last night. Dunn's at Cornell's Court was also open all night and will be staying open non-stop until December 23rd. It was a much quieter environment though. No queues and few customers. Well, I thought it would be quiet and it is quiet and it's grand. And what were you buying, do you mind me asking? Oh, just the usual. I only come in for milk, actually. And that was it. <laughs> but I got a few bargains in today. And, and why come out at, gosh, it's, it's nearly 2am now, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. God. It was nice but strolling around with nobody bumping into you. Yeah, it was grand. Yeah. Are you going to go home to sleep now? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! 
Jonas Sullivan reporting for us overnight on those late night shoppers. If they'd left it a few hours later, they would have got caught in the rain at about five this morning in Dublin, as some of us did. Irish embassies play an important role in bringing messages from this country to key figures around the world. And this year... One of those key figures happens to be Santa Claus. Ireland's ambassador to Finland, Ruth Parkin, spoke yesterday to Santa, who's currently working hard in Lapland in the Arctic Circle. They had a conversation via Zoom and he had this message of reassurance for children who might be slightly worried about his ability to travel this Christmas. Don't worry. I will be able to travel. And I just read it from here. I am an essential worker, after all. And that's lovely. Uh, I have my Christmas magic, of course. And I understand I have some special uh, diplomatic arrangements also. And thank you for that. Uh, Please tell the children I'll be there. And that was Santa speaking yesterday to Ruth Parkin, who joins us now on the line. Ambassador, what else did Santa tell you? Good morning, Rachel. It's lovely to join you this morning. And it was really wonderful to speak to Santa yesterday. Santa's really excited to get lots of messages this year, like he is every year. And the post is working, but it's a little bit slow sometimes, as we all know. So he really wants to hear from people. And he's really interested also to get children's best ideas for tackling climate change. He experiences that up in the Arctic Circle already. The snow is there, but it's a little bit late this year. And if children then, if they would like you to pass on a message to Santa, because after all, he's not that far away from you, what should they do? All they need to do is ask the parents to help them and go to the toberish.ie website, which was launched by Minister Brophy earlier in the week and is collecting lots of ideas from around the world of how the Irish celebrate Christmas. But it has a special Dear Santa page. You can upload your pictures and your ideas. You can answer the questions, send them to us. And we are going to make sure that either through diplomatic channels or by direct delivery, we will have them to Santa well before Christmas. And Santa has also told us that he's going to read some of those messages and give us some responses. Yeah, I know some children have been a little worried over the past few weeks because of the fact that Santa is old. You know, they're worried that he could Mm. get sick, but it seems he's in great form. He was in wonderful form yesterday. He's a bit sad that he can't have as many visitors this year. Usually lots of visitors come to Lapland in December, but it's a bit quieter in terms of international travel. But what he is really looking forward to is getting travelling on Christmas Eve. He's really delighted that Minister Coveney was able to give him the diplomatic clearance and that he confirmed that in the doll. He's also got his magic and he is going to be there on Christmas Eve. And if the vaccine is available soon, is he likely to get it just to be on the safe side? Well, as we heard, Santa is an essential worker. And in Finland, like in the rest of Europe, we're waiting for the um, confirmation from the European Medicines Agency that the vaccine's been approved. And essential workers will be top of the list. So I'm sure Santa will be first in line. It's also really important that we keep on going with our social distancing, even when the vaccine starts, because we know it won't work very well until everyone's got it or a lot of people have got it. So that's why it's still really important for the children to stay in bed and let Santa Claus come in and do his job in peace. Mm. And just overall, then, the key message that Santa wants to pass on is this, that if you have been a little worried about him, there's just no need to be concerned. He'll be there, usual time, usual place. 
Absolutely. And we in the embassy in Finland are delighted to help bring this message. We don't usually have to open diplomatic channels like this, but we know it's been a special year and a hard year. And we wanted to make sure that Santa's message was able to reach all the children that are worried about, about Christmas this year. And we know that it's going to be a good Christmas, even if it's a little bit different. Ambassador Ruth Parkin, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, have a happy Christmas. I think that's the first time I wish somebody <laughs> a happy Christmas this year. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.